today is November 17th. Welcome to Native Calgarian. Native Calgarian is being recorded on the lands of the Blackfoot Confederacy. The Blackfoot south of the imposed U.S.-Canadian border are the Blackfeet. North of the border are the Siksika, Ganai, and Bagani of the Confederation. These lands are now on Treaty 7, signed in 1877, with signatories that include the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Stony Nakoda, now Wesley, Chiniki, and Bearspaw Nations, and the Sutina Nation. I acknowledge all First Nation, Métis, Inuit, status, and non-status across Turtle Island, which is North America, as the keepers of these lands. Any mistakes or misinterpretations are on me. I encourage questions so that misunderstandings can be cleared up as soon as possible. I do not speak on behalf of all Indigenous, but I can share what I know as I walk down the Red Road. Okay, I'm Mekochis Chikomhaki or Red Thunder Woman in Blackfoot. My humblest apologies to the Blackfoot elders and language keepers as I try to learn proper pronunciation. My spirit name is Red Thunder Woman, given to me in ceremony by Paul Morin, uh, who's Cree. My uh, actual name through Canadian government is Michelle Robinson, but I was born as Michelle Elliott, a very very English name that has forwarded me great privilege in an English colonial world. My mother is Satu Dene, but my Indian Act imposed status card by the Canadian government says Yellow Knives Dene. My father is so Canadian that I am a daughter of the Mayflower and a daughter of the American Revolution while having an Indian Act and post status card. I acknowledge my Dene lineage and that I was born in Calgary, but my family is not part of Treaty 7 signatories. My Dene lineage roots me in the land of the Hare People, also called the Great Bear Lake People in Treaty 11. I'm a native to Turtle Island, and my Dene Nation is a visitor to this area of Klincho Tine Indahe in Satu Dene, meaning Many Horse Town, named after the Calgary Stampede. I want to say thank you uh, for all of the people that have pledged and supported on my Patreon account. Amanda, Ashley, Beatrice, Diana, Dustin, Joni, Judy, Julie, Kenna, Matt, Nathan, Sharon, The Sprawl, Tiffany, and Victoria. Sorry. Veronica. I don't know why I said Victoria. Thank you all for signing up. If you value listening and can afford to give, thank you. For those who cannot afford to give but listen in, I would love to hear from you at nativeyyc at gmail.com where you can send in your comments or questions. We're now on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher as well. NativeCalgarian.com is also up. Um, I've had four past episodes on sports and reconciliation and the Olympics. Even the sprawl took some time to listen uh, to a bit where you can get a quote for their uh, work on the on the Olympic bid. Um, a huge thank you to the sprawl for covering that. I really appreciated having a quote and all of the work that you do. On the yes side, like any other political campaign, we had... Um, you know, the campaign to text or call people. I wish I could have done more, but, you know, it. I was really public about my stance. I tried to put out my opinion to as many people as I could in the hopes that they would get behind and do the same thing. You know, I encouraged others to volunteer so we could get enough votes. And this campaign was uh, a little different in the sense that, you know, the biggest thing about campaigning in politics is that you go knock doors and door knocking techniques, while it probably could have been really positive, you know, maybe using stands and C train stations or whichever may, may be more effective. So November 13th was the actual vote, uh, just a, a Tuesday. So we had our regular te- uh, routine that day. My daughter went to martial arts and then after everything was said and done, we had our homework done. We were ready to go for the night. 
that was when we headed over to the Yes campaign um, for the end of the campaign gathering. And I did a live video. So the city said that the results for the campaign would be done by 10 p.m. and that they would give us a 15 minutes head up, heads up. And sure enough, at about 9.45, we got the notice that we're going to know in 15 minutes. So I went live on Facebook and it was really tense waiting for those, you know, couple of minutes before they finally gave us the answer. Unfortunately, it was a no. That video sucks now. Laugh out loud. <laughs> My daughter was pretty sad. Um, and didn't cry. I was really proud of her. Uh, I didn't want to cry in front of my daughter. I don't know if I ever did cry about that one, actually, even when I was alone. I, I do cry a lot when I'm alone. I think that's healing. I think it's really, a, you know, good to be honest about that. Anyway, we cleared up our bill at the, at the uh, family restaurant that we were at and uh, headed home so we wouldn't be too tired. Um, you know, because of the bid, my daughter and I, we spoke about the possibilities of being an Olympian. You know, and I tried to remind her that there was no reason why she cannot participate in the Olympics in 2016, but it just might not be here. That's all. Her class was asked to write down their thoughts on the vote, and I was really proud of her for talking about losing the investment from the IOC, federal and provincial governments to upgrade our facilities. You know, she also spoke about not being able to volunteer for the event, and I had no idea that she wanted to volunteer, so I was super proud of her. She said that her age group would be legal and that they could party. <laughs> so I thought that was pretty funny that, you know, that's what an 11-year-old was thinking about the bid. Anyway, I was really honored that APTN asked my thoughts. Uh, they went national with a small clip. So I, I did uh, share that on our uh, on the Native Calgarian Twitter and Facebook as well. Um, yeah, I just talked about the lost opportunity for the Indigenous economy and Indigenous youth and sports. Of course, the sports calls to action and reconciliation were my saddest, you know, biggest lost opportunities. Um, also, I thought it was really positive to read from Riley Many Bears, who's tweeting all the way from freaking Kenya. So he uh, tweeted out, regardless of the turnout, I just wanted to say thank you to Yes Calgary 2026 team for asking me to be a part of this movement. I've met some inspiring in individuals from the bottom of my heart. Thank you. Hashtag Yes Calgary 2026. And then Helen Upperton, she's an Olympian that I was um, honored to meet. You know, she she actually posted something that she was super sad about. And she was like, now what do we do? And Riley, he was the one who replied, we keep inspiring the next generation. We give them hope. We give them courage. We show them that sports can unite people. And that's what role models do. And I always thought that was such a great reply. I was really proud of him for that. So, you know, um, same thing for me. I really felt honored. I would have never met Riley if it wasn't for this Olympic bid. Um, I met two Olympians I would have never met. I got to hold their medals and I would have never had that opportunity. I got to meet a sports agent who happens to be Jordan Tutu sport agent as well. And um, really nice man, Russell. Um, he, he genuinely cared about the idea of reconciliation. And as did, uh, you know, Jason, he was kind of the front man for the whole conversation I'm sure you've seen him in the news and and on Twitter and on Facebook talking about yes Calgary 
you know, and I got to meet Stephen Carter and I talked a bit about him before on the on the podcast and it was really actually refreshing to meet him because it's one thing to know each other on Twitter or on Facebook and, you know, politically disagree or block each other. He blocked me at one point. Um, but now, now that I've met him, I kind of understand a little more where he's coming from and, you know, and he's just a decent guy, right? So yeah, it was, I, I, I felt really lucky to meet a lot of people. You know, I experienced some microaggressions from some of the other volunteers, but then I met other volunteers that went out of their way to say hi to me. So, you know, it's just, it just is what it is. And we're, I know that this group of people are really motivated to continue good work. So I'm really excited about what the future could look like, regardless of us losing this bid. And I'm hoping again, because of the conversations that we had that maybe just maybe there will be a few more people interested in implementing the sports calls to action which again is a conversation I probably never would have come across had I you know not been a part of this Olympic bid so really grateful to everybody for that so I guess with that I, I wanted to say I came across a fellow that was a hard no and he received a text from yes Calgary in in Urdu and got everyone to change their vote because yes, Calgary took the time to do that translation. Um, you know, I I need to get all the calls to action in different languages. Um, and if you can work on that in your circles, please know I would support you 100%. I'm sure those ideas out, are out there. So if you already know of that work getting done, please just send me a link because I know that my like nonprofit and I think everybody would really benefit from having different languages when it comes to the calls to action and especially you know 93 94 are both about um, newcomers newcomers coming to Canada well how great would it be if that was part of the brochure that we gave out to them in their language also the 94 calls to action so they have an understanding so anyway I just want to throw that out there huge thank you to yes Calgary for inspiring me and starting conversations in my family that would have never taken place if it wasn't for the bid. Um, so let's move on. Uh, if, you know, I'm going to start talking about Indigenous issues and some of the news that has come across my feed in the last week that's just like, ugh, I thought people knew these things. So anyway, I'm going to read you this headline. Indigenous women still being coerced into sterilizations across Canada, Ontario Senator says and uh canadian uh, press published this and i thought everyone knew i thought everyone knew that indigenous women are still in this position because first of all if you follow the truth and reconciliation calls to action they're they have a, a health area you know and uh 57 education for public servants racism is a huge health determinant for indigenous people in canada um, because people have all of these biases against Indigenous people, we don't get proper health care. I can't say that enough because people have biases against Indigenous people. You know, things like abortion and such are actually kind of pushed onto our people. Sterilization, been pushed on our people. Now, for people who may not have the history, like, you have to understand how... Canada has been built on racism. There was lots of anti-Semitic belief systems when creating Alberta. Um, way back in 1928, they were all over the eugenics science. They thought that was Jim Dandy. 
So, you know, the Legislative Assembly, they actually passed something called the Sexual Sterilization Act. And the whole point of it was to allow for sterilization of mentally disabled people in order to prevent transmission of undesirable traits to offspring because they were morons and they actually thought that at the time. Um, they thought mental illness, mental retardation, epilepsy, alcoholism, uh, criminal behaviors, social uh, defects. They thought prostitution and um, being LGBTQ2 plus was something that needed to be eradicated. And because indigenous people didn't speak the language, they didn't understand the culture, um, we were already dehumanized as savage. Nobody felt bad about uh, sterilizing us. And we knew that this went long, long into the future. Uh, during the time of the Alberta Sexualize, or Sexual Sterilization Act, there was 4,800 cases. 99% um, of them <laughs> received approval. Now, like I've heard the stories. I've, uh, you know, heard of fathers who were raping their daughters and they were the ones who got sterilized so that dad could continue doing it without thinking twice about it on, um, you know, pregnancies and stuff. Uh, examination of sterilization records demonstrated legislation did not apply equally to all members of society. Specifically, the act was disproportionately applied to those in socially vulnerable positions, including females, children, unemployed persons, uh, rural citizens, unmarried inst institutionalized people, Roman and Greek Catholics, and persons of Ukrainian, Ma Native, and Métis uh, descent. I actually... I thought people knew this. Uh, in January 2015, I had met, uh, uh, well, no, this is when the book was published, actually. But I had met the author, Claudia, who wrote this uh, book called A Special Hell, Institutional Life in Alberta's Eugenics Years. And it doesn't even focus on just the Indigenous part. Like, it's just, you know, do, 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 Canadian history for you. Not the nice part, but it's a part of it. So, yeah, there's always been, you know, conversations that it's just never ended. Um, I haven't come across this before, but um, just recently, Miranda Lambert, after that book was published in December of 2016, she actually focused just strictly on colonialization and sterilization of Indigenous women, an act of genocide by Miranda Lambert, um, and just listed a few of the goals and objectives were to understand colonial practices their effects on Indigenous women, to identify the goals of the Canadian government, to identify the effects of colonial forces on Indigenous health, racism I was just talking about, and sexism, uh, to identify the colonial changes imposed on the sexuality of Indigenous women, to understand what sterilization and coercive sterilization are, to realize the severity of the sterilizations that occurred, and to identify strengths and weaknesses, blah, blah, blah. Great work, obviously, that she had done. And, um, you know, I, I was just really surprised that people were unaware that this is still happening because we don't address racism. We don't address sexism. And we, most people, when I say colonialism, their eyes glaze over. So they don't understand the bigger concepts here. So, you know, this is all structural. This is all systemic. And it's never been properly, you know, dealt with. And the TRC calls to action on health. If we implemented these things, this would reduce it considerably. But, you know, people have to put some effort towards that. And I guess that's the problem, settler privilege. So look into that. 
make sure if you know someone in the health profession that, you know, kind of see where they're at on their biases against indigenous people. Because if they, you have to be with them for like a, you know, half an hour for them to determine your worth, your humanity, that might be a clue. They might have a little bit of a bias against indigenous people. Anyway, some other conversations that were, have been happening actually over the last couple of weeks. Um, I'm, I really feel that the Canadian media is just going out of their way to really criminalize and demonize Indigenous people and continue that dehumanization. And one of the ways that I'm finding that this is incredibly effective is that the Conservative Party is going out of their way to talk about healing lodges in the Canadian Correctional Service as, you know, as a, a negative and going out of their way to use terms like child killers associated with healing lodges. Now, I actually want to read to you a tweet from Michael um, Hutchinson, and this he tweeted this on November 14th. He said, Dear Canadian media, they are not Indigenous healing lodges. They are Canadian corrections services that use Indigenous beliefs as a means to speaking to inmates of all nationalities. Healing, healing lodges are, at best, a hybrid and largely reflect Canadian cultural ideas on justice, end of quote. And I thought it was a really great conversation to have because, you know, the Tory government right now is going out of their way to demonize, um, you know, these connect the Canadian correction services that they call healing lodges. But ultimately, they're under Canadian cor corrections jurisdiction. I bet there's close to zero or little... Um, indigenous knowledge in it at all. I've seen racist comments all over the comments about, um, you know, he sweat lodges and that no one is even talking about sweat lodges, but racists like to take it out and start talking about these things and demonizing our, our culture, as opposed to looking at the systemic problems that Canadian Corrections has. There are reports after reports after reports on all of the issues in Corrections Canada and yet you're using this as a platform to be racist against Indigenous. If you do not understand what I'm talking about, please send me an email so that I can try to dumb this down more because this is the most ridiculous thing I am seeing. It's just perpetuating racism and it's being done by the Tory government. Or I shouldn't even say that, the Tory um, official opposition in government. So if you're a Tory supporter and you're hearing this type of rhetoric, can you please start saying in these circles, you know, that's actually not the way these things work. And this is actually Canadian corrections, not necessarily Indigenous led. It's not like we have no choices on these things. So and it's not just Canadian or uh, Indigenous people that are accessing this. It's all people. So it's not really Indigenous, like why people are calling this Indigenous at all. I don't even understand. So anyway, um, I just wanted to throw that out there because, you know, it is very clearly being done in a racist manner online, whether it's through the comments or even the way the Canadian media is talking about it. And then to have the official opposition talking in such a derogatory way. People, this is settler privilege. This is racism. This is discrimination. This is bias against Indigenous people because they're not even talking about it right. So I am going to direct everybody to Settler Fragility, Why Settler Privilege is So Hard to Talk About. This was published on November 
14th. And the author, I actually, I went out of my way to find her on, on um, Twitter because I just thought it was so great to amplify her. And if she's writing like this, everyone needs to be following her because she's fantastic at doing this. So her name is uh, Dina Gilio uh, Whittaker and just a fantastic article. Um, I asked her if I could actually print it off and give it to people because it's, it's worth that. It's worth listening to. Um, I, for those who've listened to me in the past and I've talked about uh, white fragility and the book that I have on white fragility, this is literally, I, I said then, I wish somebody would do settler fragility because it is different than just white fragility. And finally, we have an article that exactly hits this um, nail on the head because it is incredibly important for us to be talking about settler privilege and the lack of understanding that a lot of settlers have about uh, the land that they're on. So if your, you know, second language is English because you're from Austria or you're from India or you're from wherever in the world, like there needs to be an understanding that being a settler is not necessarily white, but it's pretty close to white. It's a colonial state. Like there's colonial thinking that people are missing. Um, this particular article, you know, talks a lot more from a U.S. perspective, but it doesn't it doesn't matter because it's the same uh, paternalistic ideas that were imposed onto Native people even in Canada. So, you know, non-Native people, people of color, they still experience privilege and fragility. And so many people do not understand this. And I really love that, you know, she really puts it out here. I'm going to read you a little bit of this. She goes, all ranges of the political spectrum. On the liberal end, we see, I love Indians and Indian culture. I believe native ancestry somewhere in my family tree. I've been oppressed too, even though I'm white. Or the classic, even though Indians didn't deserve what we did to them, the damage is done and there's nothing we can really do right to do those wrongs. And and we should just move on, forget the past, and Indians should, you know, get beyond their victimization. Or, we are all one people now. You know, I'm a person of color, and I'm subjected to racism, so I don't have settler privilege. Or, since I'm poor, and I don't know any land, I don't have settler privilege. In the middle, we see, you know, neither my ancestors killed anyone to be here. My people are not to blame. Um, we can't apply the standards of today to the behavior of our European ancestors, which is an evasion of accountability, which she puts that out. Um, most Native Americans have uh, white ancestry. This means that they're complicit in settler colonialism, too. If everyone is to blame, then there's no one to blame. And then there's people on the right end of the spectrum that are like, Indians are all killing each other anyway when Europeans got here. Or, I'm Native American because I was born here. I get that all the time. That's a huge part of the reason why I named this podcast uh, Native Calgarian. Because I don't know how many people I've met that are like, oh, I'm a Native Calgarian. And I ask them, really? What nation are you from? And they don't have an answer because they're actually not Native. So anyway, um, really great article. She talks a lot about the negative impacts of history, um, skin privilege, mixed blood, um, yeah, and apparently this isn't her first writing either. So there's some other great works that she's done called All the Real Indians Died Off and other 
20 myths about Native Americans, as long as the grass grows, the indigenous fight for environmental justice from colonialism to Standing Rock. So you can follow her at uh, D-I-N-A-G-W-H-I-T on Twitter. So please do, because she's worth listening to and reading and continuing on. And I'm really assuming um, Dina is female. So my greatest apologies if I have that wrong. Um, I'll try to find out more. If if I need to come back to that, I will. Kind of like when I said earlier today, I got somebody's name wrong. Johnny Thunder. It's it's James Thunder. I don't know why I had it in my head. It's Johnny Thunder. But anyway, follow Reconciliation Thunder and my apologies to James for not getting his name right uh, in my earlier podcast. So let's move on. Um, I had a hell of a week. It was really great. I met uh, some an MP from Scarborough Rouge Park, and he's the parliamentary secretary, secretary to the Minister of Canadian Heritage and Multiculturalism, and his name is Gary Anne and Asandari. And I apologize for getting that wrong. Um, anyway, he came to Action Dignity, and Action Dignity uh, contacted my organization, 12 Community Safety Initiative, and I was able to come out and talk a little bit about the anti-racism granting system that they have. I don't think there was another Indigenous person at the table that I remember. So yeah, I just kind of, you know, obviously focused more on Indigenous issues. And I actually gave a plug about the Calgary Foundation because they have an oral request of giving grant money for funding. And I, I just think that that should be something that's done nationally. So I'm hoping that we can get connected for that as well. Another big thing that kind of happened in my world is my daughter, her school <laughs> had a bit, long story short is that it was started off as a private school, became a public school, which is why I brought my daughter to it. When it was a public school, the land went into receivership. And now that the land is in receivership, the, um, property owners want to sell the property. So we're literally going to lose my daughter's school. And I actually don't have a lot of uh, skin in the game, frankly, because, you know, we weren't planning to put my daughter there for another year anyway, because French immersion starts at uh, grade seven. So we were just going to put her in that. And um, they, they do a new cycle in grade seven. So that's actually what our plans were. But of course, because we have, you know, eight years, nine years in the you know, at this community, they really become our community too. And uh, so anyway, we had a meeting and they kind of made it public. And, you know, there's an election coming up, not a lot of time to get a lot of work done before the writ drops, because once the writ drops, none of the sitting MLAs can do any of the work that needs to get done in order to save the school. So they're actually going through the process of school closure right now. And, you know, we went to the first meeting to really explain that um, to the public and go through the work. So, you know, I'm behind the scenes trying to work with the MLAs I know. And, you know, it, it's hard because it's an election year. And this area is a UCP area. The UCP MLA was there. Um, the Minister for Education is is uh, David Egan, and the Minister for Infrastructure is one of my favorite people, Sandra Jansen. And 
yeah, it's a mess. And I don't know how this is going to play out. But at the end of the day, I took a ton of names and numbers and emails. So I got to start entering all of that data. And I couldn't spend as much time as I wanted on it because of the other things that had happened. Um, I actually spoke at Mount Royal University. I spoke a little bit about it on my last podcast. The professor had taped the event, recorded the event. So I had already shared it on my on my Facebook and my Twitter. So if you want to look for it, you're more than welcome to. It's an hour and 20 minutes. So it's it's a bit to to listen to, but it would be great if you wanted to hear more and maybe maybe watch. I don't know. I couldn't even watch myself to see if I liked it. So, <laughs> but that's just me. Um, I also met the Minister of Infrastructure and Communities, Francois-Philippe Chapon. He's uh, from Quebec, Shawinigan, Quebec, actually. So he was here on official business. Um, for those who do not know, I work for 12 Community Safety Initiative, which is right on International Avenue, which is 17th Avenue on the southeast side. So not the part that has all the bars and stuff, but on the east side, we have all of these major, um, you know, different foods. Every type of food you can think of is on 17th Avenue in the southeast. It's amazing. And I mean, we have mechanics, we have every type of business that you can think of, right? Lots of uh, healthcare clinics. Um, yeah, lots, lots of services. So anyway, we've been undergoing for the last two years, a lot of construction. And it was finalized. And with that, obviously, there was a ton of money given from the federal government. And he came to be a part of the opening celebration. So he was here for that on top of many other things that he does. Um, I got to pick him up at his hotel, him and his two staffers, and uh, very busy people uh, the whole way there. He did some radio interview, spoke at um, our event that we had at Calgary Force Lawn. Uh, we had it right in Boston Pizza on Memorial there, and he spoke to quite a big crowd. There was 30 people at least that I counted at one point in time, and um you know, just talked about all of the positive investment that has been going into not just Calgary, but Canada in general. And, um, you know, he obviously very much loves his job, you can tell. And it was just really refreshing to hear from him. And it, for those in politics that are interested in uh, nerdy politics, things like I am, um, even though he came from Shawinigan, which is for those who may recognize that riding, that's the riding where Jean Chrétien originally had and held a uh, former prime minister. So, you know, you'd think former prime minister's riding would be really strong, but apparently it wasn't really strong when he first came into it, Francois Philippe. And um, he had to build his whole riding from scratch because a lot of people had moved on. And, uh, you know, I didn't talk about it then. I just kind of listened, but there was this huge um, divide in the Liberal Party at, during the Chrétien and Martin era where there was like one camp of each and it broke up the party. And a lot of people would probably argue that's why they didn't do so well for all those years. So anyway, um, and allowed Harper to rule and basically ruin our country. So obviously I'm a liberal. That's how I feel. And I, I feel that way about all conservatives because I brought it up already. Some of the hard, awful things that they're doing in regards to the, you know, calling, um, calling it healing lodges and corrections, Canada, whatever the racist. So 
I wanted to, um, you know, just highlight that I met this gentleman. He was very kind, really good to the people at Calgary Forest Lawn that came out to the event. And um, I drove him back to his hotel. Or actually, I didn't. I drove him into Inglewood where he had, he stopped to get uh, with some food at without papers. And I told him it's really great. And it was a beautiful, beautiful night. So I hope they walked back to the hotel. But, you know, you're busy. You might have to hop in a cab. I don't know really nice people. It was really nice to meet them. And um, I I really thought it was fitting when we were there. I had uh, one of the fellows talk to me about fluoride. He's like, you know, all excited to get fluoride back into Calgary's municipal water. And he, he was like, you're for that, right? And I just kind of, you know, he hit me out of the blue on this. And my mind hasn't been there at all. My mind has always been like in the last week has been on violence against indigenous women because I got a call out of the blue. Well, I actually, I didn't even get a call out of the blue. What had happened was I was on my Facebook and I got a message. Um, and I got this message from this woman I didn't meet, have never met. We had no mutual friends. I check her profile pic and there's a picture of her with Stephen Harper. And she introduces herself as somebody from the national inquiry. Now, I've been registered with the National Inquiry since the moment they opened up registration. Um, I had, I'd had i been contacted previously by one of the people I have so much love and respect for, uh, but had since left, and I don't want to name names because I don't know if it'd be appropriate. Um, anyway, she, she had to move on, and, you know, every time I tried to contact the inquiry, it sounded like they had lost my contact information. Um, I've never moved. I've never changed my number. My husband and I have had the same home number since 1995. Um, we don't move. <laughs> we don't like we, we stay where we're at. So it's been really insulting to kind of get that response from people that they just lost our information. And then um, on top of it, to be, of course, a freaking Harper supporter, because my personal opinion is, is that when Ron Ambrose cut all of those programs for violence prevention against women, coupled with Harper's cuts to all the Indigenous services, like we lost Kwai here in Calgary. We lost a ton of services. So, of course, we had this huge uptick of missing and murdered Indigenous women right here in my backyard, right in Harper's backyard. And they're so oblivious. They're so privileged. They have no concept. So I literally blame them for this. And then to have one of his supporters actually contact me, it was painful. So whatever. I um, I gave a statement. That's where my head was at. And it, it was yesterday, November 16th. And for those Métis out there, and hopefully all Canadians, I hope we all learned that November 16th is Louis Riel Day. That's the day that the Canadian government executed an elected MP who never sat in the House of Commons one time, who worked really hard at Confederation in the establishment of Manitoba. And they murdered him, executed him. So on that day, I got to give a statement to the National Inquiry. And I posted this on Facebook. I said, I can't describe how I feel. I feel freer, but regretful that I didn't say enough. I wasn't prepared, but I really don't know how to tell it either. I didn't have time to compile, yet I guess I should have been all along. It was so weird being in Crossroads. that There was a hotel in Crossroads I gave this statement to. And I was talking about Abbeydale, Whitehorn, Marlborough Park, and Temple, the places I just ran for. 
but not in a good way at all because these were the sites of brutal rapes and murders. You know, I wish the police budget, because right now in Calgary, there's this, lots of articles about the police budget and how upset the police are with the budget cuts that are coming. But I said, you know, I wish budget, uh, police budgets cared about telling Indigenous families about their loved, their lost loved ones with respect and dignity. And I wish it had culturally appropriate support systems for them. And that's what I talked about in my in my statement was the huge gaps in services. Um, I wish it had anti-racism training. I wish politicians that cared about fluoride cared a smidge more about dead women as a health crisis. You know, that was the fuel that gave, that made me run, but it's just too fringe to get support and um, votes. You know, I wish my voice was heard by all with those with the power to change it. Truth and Reconciliation Commission number 57, education for Indigenous education for public servants. You know, it's just too much for them to hear. Settler privilege on full display. How does a community heal without buy-in from all of the parties, whether non-Indigenous community, policing, municipal politicians, as well as the partisan parties at the provincial and federal levels? You know, one cycle of blue or the Tories in the next election, and it all goes back to being worse. So I have this constant anxiety about the future. You know, so I question myself, gaslight myself, you know, should I have kept it private? Now that it's done, how can I start to heal? You know, what does healing even look like, knowing that it's not going to stop with all the settler privilege there is out there? And right now, there are two girls that I know are missing that I want safe. So, and, you know, it's insulting because I got the space, but I knew they were going to turn down the other families, the actual families that lost their their loved ones, like in that time span that I've been talking about, they will never have a chance to heal, let alone tell their stories, because they were excluded, because of the parameters of the national inquiry. This was still written yesterday. Janelle would have been 30 today. Tomorrow is the anniversary of her aunt's passing. I'm grateful for the text from someone that is an amazing person and an elder. I hate colonialism. I hate the ignorance Structural racism, internalized racism, it just doesn't end. But I love, and that's all that matters. Tomorrow I focus on healing from this accident and move forward. Missing a party on 17th just to see a chiropractor. Healing, that needs to be my focus. And, you know, that's all I wrote. But obviously for me, it's really important that all Indigenous people go through their feelings and figure out what is it that I'm feeling? What am I going through? And, you know... How do you heal in a in a system that doesn't really want you here and wants you eliminated? But I think even knowing that is healing. So that's why I would just say that anyone who's listening, just know that um, there is a way to heal from this. And, you know, if settler privilege allows people to go to Tim Hortons and watch sports and not really care about things, there are ways for us to kind of disconnect and have those happy moments and happy times with her families. I always cherish the time I spend with my daughter, even if it's just watching TV shows together, because it's something that we get to enjoy together and spend time together. And, you know, I have my husband and my dogs and, and my extended family. I wish I could see them more, but it just doesn't always work out that way. You know, for me personally, reading um, books on the subject, like the importance of uh, monogamy by Sarah Car- Carter 
that changed my whole life. It just helped me heal so much. And whenever people come at me with, you know, what are the solutions? Oh, solutions are there. I've been repeating them over and over and over in the hopes that people will, you know, it'll, it'll become a thing. Like even in, like, just put aside everything and just know the basics of education that, you know, most people, they need to hear something seven times. They need to read it. They need to write it. They need to say it. It needs to be told to them seven, seven times. So if I say it to you now 31 times, the same thing over and over again, it will click. There will be a, a, a change or hearing it coming from me, you know, might be the, the fifth or the sixth. So the next time you hear it from somebody else, it'll make sense and it'll change. So that, that's part of the reason for the podcast is that ongoing education. And the hope is too that if nobody listens to any of my other episodes, that each episode is its own standalone episode, that you don't need to listen to the other ones in order to feel comfortable with what I'm saying right now. So kind of my goals and part of my healing journey is just talking about these things in the hopes that people will understand. And when they talk to other Indigenous people, are kind and loving and respectful and, and go from there. So so today, I, I don't know if you knew, but I kind of talked a little bit from an accident. I um, had an accident at the end of March. And yeah, it's been actually really frustrating. I'm only 41, but now I'm realizing I'm not 21 and I'm not bouncing back as quick as I used to. So like, I really do got to focus more on my health and, and such. So that's kind of where my health, my like my head is at with uh, with things and maybe letting go a few of the other things. But as I said, I got to start working on the structure for the parents of my daughter's school and uh, hopefully we can make some change and maybe save the school. I don't know. It's pretty late in the game for us to be saving the school. We'll see. So listen for that. Anyway, um, I just wanted to share something that a friend of mine is doing. Obviously, I believe in Native awareness training, and I have a friend, Walter McDonald White Bear, doing that. This is on Wednesday, December 5th from 9 till 4. Um, this is at uh, 15th and 43rd Street Southeast. So check it out and pay for it because maybe hearing it from me, it, maybe it'll connect more if you hear it from him. So pay him his fee and go to it and maybe you'll learn something um, different than what you'd learn from my show because uh, I don't know if he's Ojibwe or Cree, but he's not Dene. And um, you might be able to learn uh, different aspects of his culture, his indigenous culture, than maybe mine. Maybe you'll learn some new terms, maybe the medicine wheel, a few different things. So I, I just strongly encourage people to hear from other natives and other perspectives because you know we all have our own different teachings from our different nations people like myself and urban indigenous i get to learn from all of the urban elders in the in the area and for him he has his own teachings and he may say it in a good way that you'll understand anyway indigenous have been talking about you know these issues and sharing our traumas and reports just so it can be regularly disregarded no more honor the words of all of the Indigenous people that have shared their traumas in these reports. Honor the treaties. Listen to politicians and their policies and their platforms. 
if they don't recognize the marginalized in their budget with Gender Equity Plus, if they're cutting violence prevention programs and services, know that your vote to that party directly negatively impacts marginalized people. Demand the, that they implement the Truth and Reconciliation Commission calls to action, the recommendations of the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples, uh, the United Nations on Declaration of Rights of Indigenous Peoples, the multiple reports about child reform, child welfare reform, and violence prevention. You know, our people are experiencing extreme racism in the educational and health institutions with multiple reports that say the same things. Demand change from election platforms and politicians. If they don't understand colonialism, racism, and sexism, they literally have no business running. Um, this should be understood by all parties and you know, local politicians, community organizations, sporting organizations, everyone needs to get on board with this. Violence is just my daily reality. Every Indigenous generation has faced it. That's why I started this podcast, to be able to speak freely, without interruption, without tone police, without leadership shaming, without gaslighting questions. Many people don't want to hear Indigenous opinion, but sure like to share theirs, and usually by people who don't know anything about Indigenous people. They don't know about colonialism. They don't know anything about the constant surveillance of Indigenous people. They don't know about why we're protesting or why we are having vigils, but we are still being surveilled while we have protests and vigils. Uh, they don't know anything about our rights. Typical microaggressions, people with internalized racism, people who are gatekeepers, people who survive off the status quo, people who are in their trauma and stop people from doing the work and depleting resources. Internalized and externalized racism is an everyday reality for Indigenous people. This is why I needed a podcast. My hope is that my family will be proud in the future as I discuss these things today. Um, I usually talk about cultural safety. I started at the, I usually put it at the start, but I started to do it at the end because I just want to make sure that for those who've listened to my first 30 episodes, this is the same thing that they're hearing. And for new people, this might be something new to you. I always start off with the land acknowledgement because Land acknowledgement is inclusive to Indigenous people, but it also recognizes the gravity of colonialism. Um, other cultural safe spaces that you can um, put into action is that, you know, you got to start to do something. Having good attentions is not enough. Taking action to make change, speak out against racism, ask questions with those with more understanding, find allies, take responsibility for your own learning, read, reflect, and ask questions. Take time for self-reflection. Be aware of your own assumptions and biases. If you're listening to this episode and wondering, I wonder what kind of, you know, upbringing she had, or if you're judging whether or not I was a sex worker, or if you're judging whether or not I'm a lesbian, and if you're deciding if I drink too much alcohol that I may be living a high-risk lifestyle. These are things you're thinking. You have bias. Point blank, you have bias. If I say something and my husband says something and you're more likely to hear it from my husband, you have sexist bias. This is for real. If a transgender person says something and you're more likely to hear it from me than them, then you have some transphobia you need to deal with there. So like really question your biases. Do that self-reflection because I can promise you as somebody who is heterosexual, it took me a long time to get where I got with talking about 
uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, two-spirit issues. Long time. Um, it's really hard to know something you don't know. Like, so for example, I don't understand the bias against um, those who are under the LGBTQ2 plus spectrum. I just don't. I don't know what it's like knowing that every single TV show is catered to me, like me as a girl who likes boys rather than the opposite. You know, I don't. Um, my daughter and I are watching Riverdale and they actually have a lesbian friendship on, on that show. Um, relationship, I should say. Well, I never had any of that growing up. So, you know, representation really matters and showing and depicting people as regular people, it, that's really important. Um, I've been lucky enough to meet people with, um, you know, um, disabilities. And from that, I've got to learn so much. Here in Calgary, we have a wonderful advocate. Her name is Elaine Lee. And I use her name freely because she is a public advocate. And she spoke about a lot of the problems that she was having at the new Calgary Public Library with her because she's small. She's a super small person and um, on a wheelchair. So she was just going around with a news camera showing some of the barriers that she's facing. You know, as somebody who's able-bodied temporarily, I should add, that I don't understand these things. I don't know these things. And it's really important to step outside your bubble. So even for me, I take time for self-reflection because there are biases and assumptions that I have that I need to question. So when it comes to Indigenous people, really question everything that you've so-called learned about us and take steps to actively disrupt the stereotypes I had to do that. It was part of the uh, self-hate that I had, um, you know, internalized racism issues that I had to overcome. Um, commit to lifelong learning. I just learned the other day about Cree code talkers at the Great War. I didn't know that was a thing. I heard of Navajo code talkers in the Second World War, but not the Canadian Cree talkers. So be prepared to be uncomfortable. Understand colonialism, uh, understanding colonialism and the legacy of racism is an ongoing and difficult task. Uh, another thing that I just recently learned about was the Ukrainians that were put in intern camps in the Great War. You know, they're the ones who made the beautiful uh, Banff Jasper uh, tourist resorts that I get to enjoy here in just outside my backyard. So I want to thank heretohelp.bc.ca for what is Indigenous cultural safety and why I should care about it for some of these guidelines. Um, I usually talk a bit about internalized racism, and a lot of people understand that as lateral violence. And the reason why that even exists is because of systemic racism. So, um, for example, I tried to give this example at Mount Royal University that if, you know, I can speak at a, an event for $50, but my um, other friend can um, is willing to do it for $25, if I say, oh, well, they're not really native or something mean like that, then, you know, I'm trying to show that, you know, I need that money and I become a bit of a gatekeeper or I become a you know, just, just mean, I'm, I'm just laterally violent to whoever this person is. And I, I use that as an example, F for the record, I don't get paid. But that's not the point. The point is, is that, you know, some people call it crabs in a bucket mentality. 
all of this is created by racism, the systemic racism. And I, I can't go on enough about Sarah Carter's works. She's done another book called Lost Harvest and such, because she really explains these government policies that have been imposed on Indigenous people. And um, when you understand these systemic issues, then you can see why it is, you know, people will um, hush each other when it comes to certain topics, because we don't want to expose these conversations or whatever that looks like. But you can Google internalized racism and uh, racialequitytools.org has a bit more of a conversation about, you know, the different dimensions of racism, internalized racism. Um, another thing that I tried to educate people on is what do you do when you see somebody being harassed? And when I say somebody, I mean somebody who's being racist and someone who's being anti-black, anti-Muslim, anti-trans, anti-indigenous, anti-whatever, some type of oppressive, you know, violence or harassment and what to do when you see that. Um, you can make your presence known as a, as a witness if it's safe to do so and the person consents, film and record the incident. It's a lot easier to delete that video than it is to wish you had taken it or at a later time. Um, and I actually have found in all my years of activism, recording something de-escalates something immediately because somebody can be a real jerk off. And the moment they're on a uh, video, they don't want to be recorded in that way anymore. And they de-escalate. Um, same thing with police. I've been at protests that they've been very rude to certain individuals. And when I start recording them, all of a sudden it de-escalates the whole situation. So, you know, I, I strongly believe in that, but of course, with consent of the person being harassed, you know, make eye contact, um, make yourself nearer to the person being harassed so that they know that you, you have their back, take cues from them, make suggestions like, Hey, do you want to walk over here? Do you want to move to another train car? Do you want him to leave you alone and just follow their lead? Notice if the person being harassed is resisting in their own way and honor that. Don't tone police people. And if you don't know what that is, please Google it. Uh, follow up with the individual being harassed after the incident is over and see if they need anything. Do yourself, do what you need to do to keep your both safe, both of you safe. Except, um, assess your surroundings. Are there other people nearby that maybe you can pull in? Working as, as a team is a good idea if possible. And can you move the person being harassed to a safer space? Don't call the police unless you're asked to. For many communities experiencing harassment right now, whether Arab, Muslim, Black, queer, trans, immigrant, Indigenous, the police can actually cause greater danger for the person being harassed. So don't do it without their permission. Don't escalate the situation. The goal is to get the person being harassed to safety and not incite further, further violence from the attacker. Whether that means like they're just calling them, you know, anti-Semitic names or anti-immigrant things, whatever. Just hopefully not ever throwing punches. But, you know, the point is don't do nothing. Silence is dangerous. It communicates approval and leaves the victim high and dry. If you find yourself too nervous or afraid to speak out, move closer to the person being harassed to communicate your support with your body. If you're experiencing emotional distress from what I'm talking about, please call the First Nation and Inuit Hope for Wellness helpline at 1-855-242-3310. It is toll free and open 24 hours a day, seven days a week, or maybe your local distress center or 211. 
Um, there's also suicide prevention lines. Please reach out. I want to say thank you to my ancestors, my granny, my mom, of what strength looks like through your example. I want to thank my dad for teaching me to be strong and blunt, my stepmom for showing me what a proud culture is through her Austrian family and roots, and stepping up and teaching me how to be a proud Calgarian. It's through you that I identify as a second-generation proud Calgarian. I want to thank my husband Darcy for producing and editing the show on top of being my husband, my childhood friend, father of our child, and a support down my journey of the Red Road. He has witnessed decades of racism and sexism that I have experienced. Um, to our child, who we are blessed to learn from every day, we are honored you chose us. We, you give us uh, daily accountability to be better, stronger people. Um, my Patreon account is Native Calgarian, where you can pledge and support. I want to thank the previous donors for already showing your support. Uh, if you value listening and can afford to give, thank you. To those who cannot afford to give but listen in, I would love to hear from you at nativeyyc at gmail.com, where you can send in your questions or comments. And now we are on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Nativecalgarian.com is also up. And with that, I say thank you for listening.